Welcome back to the Monica Matthews Show. Happy Friday to you guys. Uh, Today we heard oral arguments on behalf of OSHA and the Supreme Court of the United States and Biden's complete overreach with regard to uh, vaccine mandates in the workplace for employers with over 100 employees. And uh, if any of you caught that, you're probably sitting there with your mouth wide open uh, as as I was uh, not entirely surprised, although I, I was pleasantly surprised that Chief Justice Roberts uh, gave the uh, OSHA's counsel a run for or the the, the President Biden's counsel rather uh, run for her money uh, with really trying to make the case you know, as to why this overreach, um, why we should accept this. Right. And I know I'm, I've got half and half of my followers are like, uh, we're going to have a stay. Uh, no, we're not. Uh, you know, it's the great reset. What the hell is really going on? Uh, you know, we're looking at the border. We we're looking at child trafficking. We're looking at, I mean, you name it. It is so much, and I hear from you guys daily about things. And as you know, I love to have guests on my show who are well-informed, who are in the mix, who understand what's going on, uh, people who were part of uh, President Trump's uh, former administration. Uh, and so with me today, I've I brought back, who has now become a dear friend of mine, and someone I trust to bring to you guys, but John Zadrozny, who is the director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration for the uh, America First Policy Institute. Some of you are not aware of what that is, AFPI. I'm going to have John uh, introduce uh, AFPI to you who are, I know I have a lot of new listeners and new followers and welcome to my show. Welcome to 2022. We do talk about life, love, and liberty. We get down in the muck and mire and really try to meet it out, really to bring you guys information so you can make healthy, informed decisions for your lives and for your family. So without further ado, John, welcome back. Hey, Monica. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on again. Of course. Happy New Year to you. I realize that you're stuck up in the uh, <laughs> in the snow in Virginia. What a mess. Uh, well, it's kind of depressing here because I'm looking out a window right now at my street, which has not a flake of snow on it. <laughs> and um, the, the area has been brought to its knees by no snow. And, uh, you know, I was moaning this morning to my wife in the car, like, we couldn't win World War II today if we had to. If we can't, like, get people to school and jobs That's when there's right. barely snow on the ground in the morning, how would we ever defeat the Nazis? Uh, I have... It makes me worried about the future, Monica, but on a lighter note, um, all is well and there's no snow on the street. Okay, good. Well, I'm laughing because I'm in Georgia and and I fully understand your frustration because with any form of inclement weather at all, uh, it all goes to hell in a handbasket. Everyone is shut down. The world stops. It all comes to an end. There's no milk. There's no uh, bread and probably no toilet paper thanks to COVID. So, you know, it's a mess. So I, I, can, I can empathize and sympathize with you, my dear. Uh, we have nothing on the ground here, you know, any reason, any excuse to shut it all down. And we do. Our kids end up stuck at home for days, you know, and everyone's like, oh, when are you going back to school? So I get it. Okay. Uh, so I just kicked us off with, you know, what I listened to today with presenting oral arguments regarding the uh, the vaccine mandates. Uh, you and I saw you and I have also kicked around the conversation of what's going on with focus on the family, which was kind of a surprise to Christians that focus on the family is now apparently uh, officially caved to uh, the mandates before they absolutely have to. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because it's kind of like six in one hand, half a dozen in another. You've got their major donors threatening to pull their donations, right? And then you have the federal government threatening to find them uh, into, you know, basically uh, ministry bankruptcy, if you will, uh, in the coming days, if they're not enforcing, if they're not going to enforce uh, vaccine mandates. So let's kick it off with, you know, what do you think? What do you think? I'm going to ask you to predict what you think the Supreme Court is going to decide on this and and why, and then what are your thoughts on focus on the family? 
Well, the, on the, the Supreme Court, Monica, I've, I've just learned over the years to be disappointed um, in their decisions, even when we allegedly have a, a conservative jurist majority on the court. Right. Um, uh, however, that, that also usually results in, at least sometimes it results in 100-page decisions with like five different concurrences, and it's hard to even understand as someone who went to law school <laughs> what the hell they're trying to say. I, I think what they're probably going to do is they're probably going to try and find a way to say the federal government retains the authority in a serious medical situation to require this. But more has to be done on the rulemaking side, um, and maybe there has to be a little more due diligence. I don't know if that's really the court's domain, um, but it would be nice if they just said, yeah, you can't do this. There's no law that permits this. Sorry. Sure. Um, and allow the states to deal with this as you've seen they have been in different ways, in different directions. Well, the feds, um, the feds know, argument, John, which was really interesting, was, hey, there's no need to go back to Congress. Congress already decided this with with a statute that was put in place, you know, 50 years ago. And Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Roberts's um, argument to that was, well, hey, that was then. Like, we were closer to the Spanish flu with that than we are to COVID at this point. So does that even qualify, right? Does that qualify in this case with regard to uh, this, what is it, the emergency temporary temporary emergency you know whatever it's the ets right which which we started out at two weeks and um and now we're two years into this and so if anyone believes this is actually going to be some temporary emergency you know uh deal you're under a rock but excuse me i thought it was interesting that he you know he he referred to the statute that she's referring to saying, no, there's no need to revisit Congress. Congress has already spoken on this and we're actually wanting to use the statute in place in order to, I, I refer to it as an overreach, but in order to quote, protect the American worker. Well, I, you know, I can't blame them, Monica, for actually looking to a statute. Usually they, the Biden administration has not looked at current law. They've just made it up. So in a way, I have to give them a hand for, for actually citing statutes. And maybe that is a good point on their part. Maybe Congress has to get its act together and modernize this. Um, but it, it's worth noting that um, it's all how they do it in the rulemaking process. Keep in mind, we're not talking about a statute that's being accused of overreach. We're talking about a regulation. And I, I'm not a regulatory expert, but I did have the privilege of working on regs when I was in the previous administration, the Trump okay. administration. And without boring your audience tears, the short version of how it works is this. If you um, want to do something, if you want to put a regulation into effect, the way you usually are supposed to do it is through what's called notice and comment, which is you propose a rule. You say, hey, guys, we're thinking of doing this. Um, we've done some economic analysis. It'll cost the economy this much. What do you think? And then you have a period of time for the general public and people to chime in and provide comments. It's a good idea. It's a bad idea. I would also do this or that. And then the federal government processes all the comments, the material they get. They come back to the public and they say, we've heard you, America. Here's what we think. We disagreed with this argument. We agree with this argument. Here's the rule that's going into effect. And it goes in effect in 30 days. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, though, you don't have the luxury of time, right? So with a pandemic, when you have a situation like that, let's say there's a terrorist attack or something that requires immediate action, there are ways to do things on a temporary basis, but the general rule is you can't do something without public comment that lasts forever. Uh, and so you've got to tread a little bit of a fine line where if you're going to do something that's temporary, it's temporary. And you acknowledge right out of the gate, this will only last for three months or six months. Um, or you follow it up by that notice and comment period saying, we've got this temporary rule in effect because we had no choice, but America, we want to know what you think. Um, I've noticed that they haven't, unless I missed something, I don't think they've gone to the full notice and comment because I don't think they actually care what America thinks here. That's the bigger problem. And I've also seen when you don't, when the federal government does not appropriately heed the comments um, that come in to shape a regulation, uh, they get into trouble under what's called the Administrative Procedures Act or the APA. Because you can't, it's not pro forma. It's not just to make people feel good. You actually have to assess what the public thinks. If you get a lot of public commentary saying this rule will destroy an industry, and then you say, we heard you, we don't care, we're putting this rule into effect, the rule is subject to being enjoined by a court because they can go to back and say, under the APA, it's pretty clear you didn't actually heed the feedback from the public. So um, I I just worry at the end of the day, this is all going to get upheld, and it's going to come down to whether or not they follow the procedural side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just would prefer that they let the states handle it, and that we have a, a little bit of a victory for liberty in front of the Supreme Court. We'll see what happens. I, I, I will see. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? So, yeah. So over to you know, it's kind of interesting to me. We're both people of faith, and in in reading the piece on focus on the family, I thought, huh. 
Okay. I wonder how many other churches, how many other religious organizations, you know, of all people, why wouldn't you just kind of unilaterally decide as a religious organization we are a religious organization and thereby we are exempting ourselves based on our religious beliefs. Is that, I mean, is that outlandish or to, to think that that's, you know, plausible? No, not at all, Monica. But what's really interesting in this situation is that um, it's not just focused on the family. I mean, it's in some ways disappointing and somewhat shameful uh, and they're, their donors and their employees will react accordingly and we'll see what happens to them as we go forward. They're not the only one. I know of other groups. I, I, I don't know if I can say this, but I think the Cato Institute has also imposed a vaccine mandate on its employees. I don't know if the public knows that. Oh, wow. Um, other, other groups that, I mean, the irony of the, the nation's libertarian nonprofit organization imposing a vaccine mandate on its employers is one of the most ironic, sad things I've ever heard. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I'll bet you $5 that they're not the only ones though. And if I'm, uh, an American who thinks like we do, mm-hmm. and I give money to groups, I'm going to want to know where they are, and I'm not giving them a dime if they're imposing a vaccine mandate. Because I'm not, uh, even, it's also even bad, it's even worse right. if their public posture on the policy is opposing the mandate. That's right. And yet they're doing it on the inside. Right. It does show the power of the federal government, though, Monica. For example, the Biden administration only had to make noise about this rule to scare some companies and organizations into doing it. And give others that are a little more heavy-handed and a little more aligned with Biden philosophically mm-hmm. to do it anyway, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, in some ways, it's not the worst thing in the world that private companies make these decisions. A company, a private company, wants to require its employees to have vaccines. I don't. Why wouldn't do that if I ran the company? But that's the company's call. Right. I think though, some companies have realized that when they see the Biden administration stomping its feet. They're going to do it whether that rule becomes a reality or not. And in some ways, I'm not 100% sure that wasn't the goal of proposing the rule back in September. Right. Um, but the, these groups that make money and take money from the public and raise funds and talk about fighting for liberty and freedom and blah, 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 if they are actually really doing this internally, they should tell their donors because I think people would probably like to take their money elsewhere. Sure. Sure. Okay. I want to, I want to switch gears a little. Um, so we were talking about, um, you know, uh, Ted Cruz's big flop uh, the other day, uh, referencing Americans as domestic terrorists, and now you know he's been on the backpedal tour for the better half of 24 hours. Um, and you know, most of us, I was honestly, I was very surprised when he referred to Americans who quote stormed the Capitol. As we know, you know, on the heels of January 6th yesterday, you know, I did not pay attention to anything in the news cycle. I made a commitment to myself and to my followers. I was not going to subject uh, my mind, my body, or my spirit to any of it. And, you know, and some people think I'm kidding when I say that, but I could not be more serious because taking in all of those, they're not even mischaracterizations of, of fellow countrymen and women. It, it is, it is, um, it's a maligning, right? And whenever you take in lies like that, it has a profound impact on your, on your soul, on your psyche, on your health. And, you know, the Bible's very clear about that, that, you know, the words of a talebearer go down deep and they cause wounds. And so if we look at the nation right now, one reason why I asked my audience not to pay attention to a lot yesterday uh, and to all of the, you know, malignancies coming out of the rhetoric of the Biden regime, um, which is why I was kind of surprised to hear old Ted, because I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I thought you were on our side <laughs> in terms of, you know, uh, being a patriot, uh, understanding the constitutional rights of peaceably assembling uh, and really digging into the the reality of, of the entrapment brigade that I feel like this was, uh, you know, uh, for January 6th last year. Um, but in all of that, you know, I warned my audience, hey, I'm not paying attention because it really does uh, add to this kind of mass psychosis that we hear people talking about, whether it's fear, dread, worry, accusation, whatever it is. And I'm starting to see the fallout of that in my own audience as well as people that I keep up with online. And so because of that, I took the day off. I was kind of surprised to come back at the end of the night and, and see, you know, a lot of the rhetoric going on. But I, I want to talk to you about, you know, where is AF 
uh, PI, can, can you talk a little bit about what, what's at the top of your list in, in terms of policy and what you guys are focused on this year? Because my audience is very focused on this DOJ, DHS, DOD, every three-letter agency really targeting. They seem to be targeting through narrative for now, whether or not it will become uh, criminal, criminal or prosecutorial in the future, I don't know. But right now, the narrative is that that everyday law-abiding, patriot, God-fearing, uh, you know, uh, Americans are rapidly becoming enemies of the state, as dubbed by our own state. So, what are your thoughts on that? And does AFPI have any, you know, what are you guys? Are you guys addressing that at all, or you know, how should Americans feel about this? Well, Monica, that's a great question. I, I, generally speaking, uh, AFPI's perspective on this is our, our policy approach and the things we talk about, we are pro-freedom and pro-citizen. I think that's our focus on almost every issue category. Uh, and when it comes to this particular issue with the federal government treating Americans as the biggest threat, treating, treating parents at school board meetings as domestic terrorists, it is a major problem. I, I, there are many ways to address this, and I, I think it's, there's a role for Congress at some point if and when it's run by Republicans uh, or Democrats if they have a major conversion, which I'm not holding my breath, will happen, um, or states as well in some ways. Uh, but you, the main problem is we have a federal government that's just too darn big. You know, I think we've been talking for years on the fiscal conservative side, making the argument for smaller government. And it's a sound argument. It's very logical. It's very important. It is that the federal government's just too large. We spend just too much money. Every dollar that goes into the federal government it's not helping the economy grow. It's actually being lost and not contributing to growth. And we should be preventing government from growing and the economy will be booming. That's all factually true. I'm a big believer that that's completely true. I think you have a lot of economists who would back me up on that. Uh, but the problem is it falls on deaf ears. And I think part of the problem is it's not a sexy argument because there are a lot of people who are just not green eye shades people. They're not thinking in terms of dollars and cents. And also, for what it's worth, Republicans and Democrats both spend like drunken sailors. No one's making that argument anymore. And the level of federal spending in the last 20 years has skyrocketed to the point where numbers don't mean anything to people. People just glaze over. I mean, polling shows this over and over. We work with pollsters like Scott Rasmussen and others. They'll show you that Americans just don't respond to numbers anymore. Part of it is that, I mean, Monica, I'm not a millionaire, but I also don't have any sense of that kind of money. People, when you throw words like millions and billions of people who live on $50,000 a year, they can't even process what that means. But what, what does you know, what does hit home is that a government that's so large that takes 40% of your paycheck then turns its proverbial and sometimes literal guns on you yeah. is too big. Right. Right. So w- we really have reached the point where the federal government is just too large and there is a constitutional security, constitutional integrity and freedom and security argument to be made for shrinking the size of the federal government. I mean, right now we have a federal government that I-, I actually don't even know and I wish I knew the answer to this how many federal employees there are. Let's take the military out of it, active mm-hmm. duty military out mm-hmm. of it. Um, I'm guessing it's somewhere in the high hundreds of thousands to millions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a frightening number. Why do we really need that many people? I can tell you from being inside an administration that that large number of people is unhelpful for achieving what a political administration is trying to achieve. Layer after layer of career bureaucrat, really problematic, in no way helpful, making $150,000 a year. They're all sitting at home today doing nothing. Um, we could probably shrink the D.C.-based federal workforce by, I don't know, at least 80%, 90%. And I know people at home are sort of probably bristling at that number, but I'll tell you, there is a lot of waste in the federal government, and most of it is the workforce. Um, most federal workers contribute no value to the federal government, to the American people. And some of them do, but we don't need that many. Oh, and by the way, some of them perform services that have nothing to do with the D.C. metro area. Right. And so maybe some of these services, like, for example, we've got people who work for the Department of Homeland Security who perform vetting. There's no reason some of these people couldn't work in Nebraska or Oregon. Right. There's just no reason. Right. Why are they here? Why are they in the D.C. area? You have a phenomenon now in the COVID era where people are making D.C. salaries but living in Arkansas. Right. So they are, they are basically getting, like the, for those who are familiar with the term, the cost of living adjustment you get with the federal salary, they're getting a D.C. COLA but they're living in rural Arkansas, mm-hmm. which is not money that you need to live in that area. And that's not a company's decision to make a payment. That's our money. Right. So I think we finally reached the point where we should make a, a larger argument across the Republican Party 
for shrinking the size of the federal government. Again, it's not about money. Right. It's not about dollars and cents. That's important. It's about your freedom and my freedom. When government thinks it doesn't require your approval and spends your money in a reckless way and hurts people, it's time to have a conversation about a smaller government. You know, and I, I agree. And I and I, I have to wonder, you know, I think as a party, we, we discount the level of um, disenchantment that I feel most Democrats are feeling right now with the Democrat Party. And so I wonder whether or not this would be a good time to insert, you know, with that and, and to really do some polling on that. How do today's Democrats feel about a smaller government, you know, uh, without the few talking heads of the Democrat Party or those people who are running for office who may still be utilizing, um, you know, tropes of yesteryear that really, I got to tell you, John, I mean, I tell people don't underestimate the level of suffering that every American is is contending with right now across the board. And so to get your head out of the partisan space and get back to, you know, the the idea conversation and how grand ideas and policy and and laws, you know, affect our everyday lives and our ability to uh, prosper, to live peaceably, to with one another, to move about freely, to work freely. Uh, you know, I think we might be surprised. Uh, how some of those conversations may go with everyday Americans who have happened to historically aligned with the Democrat Party. I think the Democrat Party doesn't really have much of a platform to offer, and people are legitimately tired of the same old, same old tropes that come out of that party that devise you know, just just this continual sense of agitation in the country. You know, now you see it's not, this isn't President Trump's, you know, era. Biden is not suffering from the fallout or or the leftovers of President Trump. Uh, the Biden regime is, is doing well uh, in and of themselves to destroy, you know, basically uh, our fundamental... Um, abilities, you know, to prosper and to live peaceably and to feel secure and to know that we're secure as a nation on every level, you know, from the gas pump to the grocery store, supply chain issues, uh, school, it's, it's a mess. And so I just want to encourage people listening, you know, if you are part of, and I know you're actively involved in your GOP there locally in Virginia, and I feel like, you know, for people who are involved, um, don't, don't negate for a second. This is a grand opportunity to go out and poach and um, evangelize those um, on the left. So, okay. Uh, with regard to DOD, DOJ, all of that, you know, you and I were talking about and something else that we could, there's been kind of this shift. If it hasn't, it has occurred in, in, in the voters' minds, right? Like we, we see this shift as it pertains to law enforcement. And in becoming a little bit more discriminating about who it is we're supporting with regard to law enforcement and in and who is overreaching and who's willing to 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 put on those boots, as as we said, and, and really, you know, impose upon Americans, you know, these mandates, uh, you know, it could come down to vaccine cards or passports, whatever. And as we see going around the world right now, I've also noticed kind of the shift in an attitude of law enforcement. And so let's talk a little bit about the party's focus and where that needs to be moving forward with not only the party, but candidates of the party with shrinking or um, not doing, obviously I'm not an anti law enforcement uh, person at all, but I do see where there needs to be a mind shift with regard to, okay, what is overreach? What's not, how much is too much? And, and all of that. What, what do you say about that? Well, I think we're in an interesting moment right now, Monica, because, you know, the, the Republican Party or conservative movement generally has generally painted itself and been sincerely pro-law enforcement for years, pro-military, pro-law enforcement, um, and rightly so, for the most part. I mean, we, we are the people who, who um, I don't say me personally, but um, many people fight in wars, they volunteer for military service, they are on the front lines every day, they wear bulletproof vests, they put a lot of, they put a lot of at risk to serve, and they really do serve. Um, that said, I think we need to reach a point where we're a little more discriminating in our support for law enforcement in this country. What I mean by that is this. If you have local police, sheriff's offices, 
even federal law enforcement, even military, National Guard or higher, uh, who are doing things that are supporting dictatorial behaviors and sort of just saying, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing what I'm told. We need to not be so shiny about it. I think it's, it's imperative for people to speak up and say, well, we support law enforcement who support our freedoms. We do not support um, abusive law enforcement. And um, it's a really interesting time, too, especially in light of how poorly law enforcement was treated in 2020 by most uh, Democrat governors and mayors across the country where attacking, shooting, killing law enforcement was deemed part of a, it's a mostly peaceful protest, Monica, but you can kill cops or federal law enforcement. Sure. Uh, and we were there, conservatives were there, Republicans were there saying, we support you, what can we help you? Now, in this year of complete insanity, um, we saw local law enforcement, local police departments, local sheriff's offices uh, start like jackbooting people around in school board meetings and treating them poorly in local sessions when they're trying to lift the people who work for them, the government officials, say, you work for me, I want you to do X. They'll call in law enforcement and abuse those people. And the cops are just saying, I'm doing my job. That was the defense at Nuremberg. Didn't work then, not going to work now. And I think people who are the men and women of law enforcement who want to continue to have the respect of the conservative movement need to know they're not going to get a blank check when they're jerks to people. Like, they have to, but we have to, I never thought I'd say this, but we have to get to a point where cops are exploring the conscientious objective, objection factor. Mm-hmm. Or am I going to, like, wait into a school board meeting and drag people who are talking to a school board out? I hope some of them start saying no. Any sheriff's office. Sheriffs are mm-hmm. a different ball of wax. Right. Mostly they're great, right. in my opinion. I don't know if you work with any or know any, sure. but, mm-hmm. um, because they're elected, right? Right. So they can't really be poor treat the people in their jurisdiction poorly because they actually get elected, unlike police chiefs who are appointed for the most part carry water for corrupt mayors. Right. Um, but sometimes sheriffs forget too. We had a few incidents in Virginia where sheriffs were the, the jackboots in the school board meetings dragging out parents, if you recall. The Republican Sheriff Mike Chapman in Loudoun County, who's pretty good, uh, was the one who dragged the father out of that mm. school board meeting who was trying to tell the school board that his daughter had been raped by a boy in the skirt in, in, a, in the, ba- uh, the girl's bathroom. Right. Um, he recovered from that because they then approached his office and said, uh, hey, we want you to help us investigate people who attend school board meetings. And he politely told them to go find something else to do. Um, <laughs> okay. But as you know, but the sheriffs have a little more control. My overall thing is law enforcement deserves our support as long as it's not abusive law enforcement. And I think we need to take a hard look at who's running these agencies, who's approaching the public, and we need to respect the public. The public... They work for the public. They also work for the public. And um, I think this is part of a bigger problem, Monica, which is that government officials have forgotten that they work for us. Um, Federal, state, local, you name it, every level, school board, dog catcher. They all work for us. How do we rein it in, though? How do we rein it in? That's the thing is that we all know that, right? Like discerning people can see the side that what's happening. But then my question becomes, how do you rein that in? Yeah, the, you know... um, uh, Abraham Lincoln went through a lot of generals, Monica, right? I, I think we all need to start discharging people over and over and over again until we get what we want. And right. eventually we may get what we want. Some people say, well, you know, it's important that we get control of Congress, sort of. Right. Um, you know, honestly, there are some good people in Congress, men and women, who I'd love to stick around. But if you told me we could get rid of all of them yep. and replace them with all new people, randomly chosen out of the phone book, I would do it. Losing two good people is not worth keeping 98 crappy people in the Senate, right? right. Um, but it's also not about federal. It's about state. It's about right. local. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before. Republicans have a bad habit of, look, even the people who talk the small government game, that all they do is focus on Washington and the solutions are not in Washington. Right. The solutions are at the state and local level. We need a state sovereignty renaissance. Mm-hmm. We need people to run for school board. We need people to run for mayor. We need people to run for dog catcher. And when they fall through, somebody else comes in. We just keep throwing them out. Yep. Um, you know, there's something to be said for term limits. Like, I know there are, it's a pretty volatile argument or um, debate, even on the conservative side of the aisle. Are they good? Are they bad? I think for the most part, they're good. Yeah. You, you, people should walk into service knowing they've got a finite time to make a difference. That's right. You should never have someone sitting in office for 40 years. I, I don't see how that serves the public in any way, shape, or form. I agree. Um, I mean, because honestly, you know, people don't understand that as a freshman legislator, whether it's on a state level or a federal level, you really are, you know, remember high school, right? Like remember being a freshman in high school and multiply that by a level of crack. 
you know, it is that bad. And, and unfortunately, you know, when those games are being played, it does affect, you know, other humans. It's not just you as a, as a freshman high schooler. It is affecting districts and states and in the entire, you know, and regions and the entire country. And so, you know, I don't think it's as volatile of a conversation anymore or, or, or I, I don't know about volatile. I, I will say this for years, you know, the libertarian candidates were always the ones who were, you know, uh, term limits, term limits. And, and as a consultant, I would kind of cringe if I ever, you know, got a candidate, uh, who, you know, who wanted to hire me to talk about term limits because I thought, yeah, that's not really where people are right now, you know? And now I'm thinking, man, if we had all just listened a little bit more closely to that, you know, it wasn't popular yeah. at the time, right? But now it is. Now people, at least voters, are fed up. Now you will get pushback from candidates. You will obviously, right. you know what I mean? But in everyday conversations and in my spaces on Twitter, you know, people are like, screw that. We're tired of this. Like, they got to go. You know, you get two terms you know and you're out. Monica, for for the sake of completeness, the, the counter argument to term limits, and I see I see what they're saying, um, and it's not untrue, but there's a solution to it. The counter argument to term limits is, well, that's all great. You're going to term limit people out of office, super. But the reality is, in Congress, in state government hallways, there are bureaucrats who live forever and that's work right. forever, right. and they're not wrong. They're not wrong about that. So the solution is to make sure they get fired too. Yes, like maybe you can't work for government. You can't. You can't be a state government or a federal government bureaucrat or work in the hill for more than five years there or ten go. years. Having, having worked for some great people on the hill in Washington, I know that even they, and I say this respectfully, that even they make compromises knowing that they're too junior. Like they say, well, uh, I I want this thing to happen, but I know if I vote that way, uh, I'm not going to get that chairmanship in mm-hmm, six years. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to vote that way. Yeah. And it's, it's once you start like compromising your beliefs on a vote by vote basis, yeah. you might as well already go home. Uh, but that happens all the time. And he, I think you walk into the job with a different mindset if you're term limited. It's guns a blazing. I've yeah. got a limited amount to make a difference. It's kind of like life, right? It's a, right. a smaller smaller version of life like we all have a finite amount of time on this planet thanks to god and so we've got a lot of work to do in that window it's the same you'd walk into public service with a different mindset say i got six years to tear it up i'm gonna tear it up that's right yeah you know i didn't realize how detrimental careers are uh in in dc uh until you know i became friends with someone who um was was a trump appointee and and she really it was a it was a, a great education for me and just how much of a um of, of gridlock uh careers really do cause from one administration to the next and so that was very eye-opening for me you know and i'm, I'm not sure how much how many of my audience actually understands what how much authority uh whether perceived or real um, you know, ha- how much influence, whether perceived or real, uh, you know, careers actually have. And I guess depending upon which side of the aisle you're on, you know, you're you're happy to have them or either they're the bane of your existence, um, you know, from one administration to the next. But can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, well, yeah, so the, the, the careers, the problem with this is it's sort of a similar thing about the term limits argument for political officials. You've well, that's great, but you've got these bureaucrats who sit there for 30 years, and there are some really good people. I will say that I've met some really wonderful human beings who are career civil servants. Um, they're just doing a job, they, and they walk into it with that mindset. Right. Um, like the way I'd say, if you could break it down, you could break it down in my personal experience, and only my experience, roughly into thirds. You've got one-third of career civil servants who are quietly with you. Like they're like, mm-hmm. do you agree? <laughs> right? And then... You've got a third who they, they literally don't care. They're just grateful that they've got really good jobs. Uh, right. like, Look, I'll do whatever you tell me to. Tell me where to march. We'll do it. Give me the information I need. They like to be listened to a little bit, maybe yeah. a little too much sometimes. Uh, and then you've got the Bolsheviks who just like to put IEDs everywhere. <laughs> and um, a, a lot of them are the ones who cause a lot of problems with the Trump administration. But the reality is no matter where they are on that operational perspective, mm-hmm. you don't need as many. You right. flat out don't need as many. And one problem I think we also have Monica, which your audience should be aware of, is that we've wandered so far from the Constitution that people have forgotten what the Constitution authorizes. So this is a great example, right? Every president should be able to walk into office and say, I'm shutting that agency down. I'm firing these 5,000 people. We don't need them. We're doing this. We're doing that. What Congress has done over the years is they've layered bureaucratic layer of paint over bureaucratic layer of paint civil service protection. But 
I go so far as to say all of them are unconstitutional. You know, and you've seen some stories in the last year about Joe Biden firing people that Trump appointed to, you know, you know, term positions or permanent positions. As painful as it is in the short term, I think he has that constitutional right. Uh, mm-hmm. But the reality is, so does every other president. Right. And the problem is when the bureaucracy thinks it's some sort of self-sustaining behemoth that can never be touched. That's just proof we're not actually enforcing Article 2. And I think that we need to have a more honest conversation about what a president can and should do when they come in charge. They should be able to close agencies, like literally shutter agencies, saying we're not using that department anymore. Y'all go home. Yep. Uh, you know, I don't want you there. I want you here. You're going. I don't care what your contract says. Sorry, guys. Right. These are taxpayer dollars. This is not a private company. That's right. So I think that you want to rein in the bureaucracy. We're going to have to have a real conversation about real separation of powers again. Right. We, we've damaged um, the concept of separation of power. What separation of powers actually means under our constitutional system is that every branch pushes and pulls against the other one and it creates a balance in that fight. Right. What the, the modern leftist educational system has told that separation of powers means is whatever the court says. That's false. Right. In fact, one, one of the biggest mistakes we've made over the last 50, 60 years is treating courts as sacrosanct and not ignoring their decisions mm-hmm. because some of their decisions deserve to be ignored. For example, um, Let's just say that the Supreme Court um, issues a decision on something related to the OSHA regulation. Let's just say it happens under a Republican administration. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, you have to do this. Uh, well, the administration could say, well, under our independent constitutional authority and a disagreement according to our separation of powers obligation, we don't agree and we won't enforce what you want us to enforce. Mm-hmm. That's not a good example because the OSHA rule is a discretionary thing. But think about, imagine the Supreme Court directing the executive branch mm-hmm. to do the executive branch has an obligation to say, sorry, we, we disagree. And because we disagree and we have a constitutional obligation to enforce the Constitution, we won't be doing that. Have a nice day. Right. And imagine the impact that would have on an out-of-control judiciary with someone who said no. Mm-hmm. Standing athwart history and yelling stop, um, the, the impact that would have would be substantial. I think that's what we've been lacking for a really long time. And we need to have that conversation. States need to do that, too. They need to stand up and say no. Like in the CDC mess that's happened over the last year is a great example of it. Mm-hmm. Um, these states have all hidden behind the CDC recommendations. At the end of the day, they are, in fact, just recommendations. Right. And the states are free to say no. That's right. And the, some Republican governors have been a little bit gutless hiding behind that. I expect the Dems to do that. Right. Um, but some of the Republican governors have been very gutless there. Some have been great. DeSantis is one. Um, oh, yeah. Um, a few, few others have been good on it. They need to say no. This is one of those things that drives me bonkers. States are not appendages of a corrupt federal government based in Washington. Mm-hmm. They're sovereign states. If you had told the founders that they were going to be centralized and under Washington's control in 200 years, they never would have ratified the Constitution in the first place. So right. I think we all need to go back and restudy the Constitution and refocus on sovereignty and start using the tools we were given to make sure our justice doesn't happen. Otherwise, we're, we're going to be in big trouble in a really short time. Oh, sure. Speaking of uh, DeSantis, you know, I want to talk, because this is your wheelhouse with regard to, um, you know, Department of Homeland Security and immigration, okay? And we've, we, we've covered, uh, I would say, you know, we've touched on it. I, I don't know exhaustively, but exhaustive in terms of what we can get into here in this space uh, about HHS and their propensity to basically traffic <laughs> Uh, humans uh, across our border that we happen to be paying for. So we have covered that in uh, previous shows. But today, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what is what what stats can you give us? What are actual data points you can give us of what's happening at the border? Because while we're all um, you know preoccupied with the with the with the right hand, right, the left hand is always doing something. So the border has seemingly you know been down. Uh, we've we've been uh, struggling through an what I would refer to as an invasion for the better half of a year. I think over two, the stats I have are over 2 million illegal immigrants have come into this country in the past 12 months. I don't know if that's true. So I want you to touch on this. I know Governor DeSantis is like cracking down hard on, um, on agencies that, uh, that are receiving funding and that are actually moving these people or, or accepting them in the state of Florida, including but not limited to minors. I believe he's either threatened or has followed through with uh, moving uh, immigrants out of his state <laughs> uh, via aircraft. So I don't know if that's true. Those are the stories that I've heard. But what's going on at the border? What are some of the numbers that you can give us? Well, uh, I think your number, Monica, is uh, is 
probably lower than what has actually happened in the last year, which may be terrifying. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, but you've got to figure the number is always higher than official figures. Um, and that would be true even in an honest administration, which this administration is not. Um, and the reality is because as much as we know what we know about who comes in, there are the unknown unknowns. Uh, when you talk to anyone along the border, what they will tell you is, yeah, you know, I own a ranch, for example, and every day at 930, 50 people from across the globe are standing on my lawn waiting for Border Patrol to show up, pick them up, because that's what the cartels told them to do when they crossed the water. Yeah. And, you know, their lawn's ruined and that's it. But that's not the problem, the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that at night, 20 guys in camouflage carrying rucksacks and rifles are crossing their property. Those people are not getting caught. They're trying not to get caught. Mm-hmm. And you've really got to ask yourself, you know, two questions. One, in an environment where a government is so receptive to entrance, why are you concealing your entry? And two, how many people are getting in that way? You know, one thing people forget is um, when you're at the border, the drug cartels, the cartel, I mean, I should say cartels, not drug cartels. Cartels are diversified global corporations at this point. Okay. The same organizations that are pushing drugs across the border are pushing people, they're pushing weapons, they're pushing money, and stuff, money included flows back in the opposite direction. So think of them as like, ADM. They're like a giant global diversified corporation. They make a ton of money. And when there's pressure on one commodity, they peel back on that one and they push forward on the others. Right. And so I, you've got to think in that sense, they're using the same strategies to get their products across. Now, you know, for drug trafficking, it's not an uncommon strategy for the drug cartels to, for example, they'll put some of their cargo in trucks, which they know will get stopped at a port of entry, screened and taken away. They'll get it confiscated because they'll be caught. Right. But that's done to make sure that another part of their shipment does get through that doesn't get caught. Right. So if that's happening with drugs, you have to ask yourself, is it happening with people? And the answer is absolutely, it's got to be happening. Right. So you ask yourself, why are they putting those 50 innocuous people on that rancher's lawn? It's to get those 20 people across the border later at night while the border patrol is occupied changing diapers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what worries me the most. What's kind of what keeps me up at night on this Um we weren't, it's clear we're not going to have an accurate assessment of numbers um, because the Biden administration recently announced, or either they announced or they just haven't done it. They're, they haven't released their deportation report for FY21. Um, that's probably because it shows almost no deportations right. or very low deportations. Right. So, like, you know, <laughs> clearly they understand that Americans don't want to see what they have to share, so they just would prefer not to share it. Um, I think all of this is just leading to a bad thing. The only thing that really could save us right now, and I say save us in, in quotes, is um, just got to hold firm on the no amnesty thing because the left is really trying to replace sure. Americans. By the way, mm-hmm. all of these people who are crossing the border, border and receiving a tremendous courtesy, all of the people who are breathlessly wailing about how we have to care for these hundreds of thousands of people who are entering this country illegally, mm-hmm. they're the same people who are perfectly okay with Americans being locked up since last January 6th without some basic human needs That's and right. cares. That's right. Um, and so it just sort of lays there the hypocritical nature of some of these people. But I encourage anyone who, who is paying attention to this issue, has the ear of a member of Congress or state or local legislators, you know, it's all on the whole line that we have to prevent um, things that encourage people from coming here, from coming here. We call them poll factors, right? So the federal government can deal with enforcement stuff. And at some point, maybe we'll be able to deal with that again. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, though, states and locals have the ability to shut off the low pull factors, turn off the welfare, turn off the driver's licenses, um, turn off everything that makes it easy to work in the state. Um, and at the end of the day, it's going to be really hard for some of those people who come here to stay even with the federal government's open borders policy. So everyone has a role here. It gets back to that state sovereignty issue. Um, the idea that states don't have a role here is false, and they need to fight really hard to make sure um, that the millions of people who are crossing our border illegally don't get rewarded for it. Right. That's good. I love giving people, you know, people always ask, Monica, what can we do? What do we do? You know, and and people do look to Congress to to make it all right or to make it go away. And uh, I think that's obviously very futile. So uh, that's a good point. You know, cut off the services on the state level, which I think DeSantis is, uh, you know, is a beacon um, of that. You know, look to Florida. How are they doing it? 
um, and then in your respective state, you know, demand that that's exactly what occurs. I know election integrity is at the top of people's lists um, as as well with, you know, rolling into the midterms. Um, I'll be honest with you, as you know, on a personal level, um, I have zero confidence in our election grid. Um, But that does not mean I'm encouraging people to to disengage or to not go vote. That's not what I'm saying. You know, I am, I, I feel like, even in conversations of this nature, people are demanding that you, it's either or, right? Like you can't have multiple tracks of thoughts and multiple compartments and I'm a compartmentalizing kind of person. So I'm like, all right, I can have a lack of faith in our election grid and still see that there are things that I can do, including but not limited to showing up to actually vote. Um, you know, it's not, it's, it's not either or, you know, like, well, screw it. I don't have faith in it. So I'm just not going to engage. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But, um, yeah, I, you know, and we can save this conversation for another time. Uh, you're in Virginia, you know, uh, some people believe that that was a landslide from the top of the ticket down with your executive, uh, uh, government there. And that, you know, and that's wonderful. Other people believe that it was just a, 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 it was basically a mulligan. It was a political gimme, um, you know, so that people would, you know, uh, to create this sense of faith in the election system again, that a Virginia can do it, anyone can do it kind of thing. Uh, and some people are very skeptical about whether or not that was a legitimate victory. So I'm getting it from all sides. Hey, Monica, so this, it's, this is an interesting point. I've had all variations of those conversations right. with friends here in Virginia, <laughs> family, sure friends, have. et cetera. But I'll tell you this. I actually think that Virginia is an example of what happens when people push and try, even in a broken system. So, like, I'm not going to pretend that Virginia's election system doesn't need to be repaired. I don't know what sure. Governor Lane Duncan has in store, but laws need to be fixed. Mail-in balloting needs to be gotten rid of. We need to go back to human beings walking in and casting votes in person with paper again. That's right. um, but that being said, I think that several things made a difference in Virginia that will make a difference in other places around the country as we move into the 22 election cycle and beyond. Two things. One, um, we maxed out on volunteers. Um, I remember I sat for most of election day in a, a, my local Prince William County election headquarters talking to the former chair of the Prince William County GOP and the current chair of the Prince William County GOP. And what the, the former chair, a nice guy named Bill Card, told me was, he said, if we got 30% volunteers for an election cycle, we opened a bottle of champagne. He said, this cycle, we got 90 plus percent. Oh, wow. I was sitting there while they were working the phone saying, we, no, no, we're full where you usually go. We need you to go over here because we need a body there. Um, and I myself hopped in the car a couple times and drove to a couple places where there were shenanigans. But it's pretty clear the massive presence of people was having an impact. The other thing was, for what it's worth, uh, Youngkin worked it really hard. And I know that he had people, including people in the Republican Party of Virginia, but also his team. Mm-hmm. They were out and about. and They went to the really rural counties. Now, if you had told me a year ago, they're, they're working the crowd and where we have no problems. I would say, I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, it turns out that was a brilliant strategy because right. if you go back and look at the numbers from election night, what happened was Yunkin outstripped Trump in even the deepest crimson counties in Virginia, like in the southwestern portion of the state. Mm-hmm. Trump got 88, Yunkin 93. Trump got 85, Yunkin got 91. Mm-hmm. When you squeeze those extra votes out, it makes a difference. So I think what would have happened if that hadn't happened is on election night, we would have seen the same old pattern. Mm-hmm. We would have seen massive lead for Yunkin, quiet, freeze, chipping, 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 chipping. All of a sudden, magically, Terry McAuliffe wins by 50,000 votes. I think he thought that was going to happen, which is why he ran such a poor campaign. But I think what you see is when you do those things and other things, right. you, know, you've got, you do have to go back and fix the laws. But people were energized. They got out in sure. mass. We mm-hmm. squeezed more out of our reliable counties. We had eyes on everything. And I think the you know, rumor is, I forgot if we talked about this. McAuliffe called Joe Biden on Air Force One, and I'm pretty sure that call was about, hey, Joe, I need help cheating. Mm-hmm. And Joe wouldn't take the call <laughs> because you can't magically walk out of Fairfax County's government center with a box filled with 250,000 ballots. It wasn't going to happen. Right. So I don't want to sugarcoat what happened, but sure. I don't want to discourage people from being part of the solution either. I do think crashing things with large volumes of people does make a difference and look to Virginia. I'm not just blowing smoke. Yeah. It actually happened. Right. And um, hopefully we'll use that energy to fix the laws here and then elsewhere. 
I agree. Good point. Good point. Okay. John Zadrozny of the America First Policy Institute. Thank you so much for joining us as always. Uh, I'm going to have you back, you know, and just listen, anything that pops up (laughs) that we need to know about, you're always welcome here. Uh, But we'll definitely have you, you know, back on before the end of the first quarter. And, uh, you know, we need the encouragement, the inspiration, and for sure the facts, you know, and so I appreciate you and your work. Thanks, Monica. It's an honor to talk to you again. Have a great day. You too, hon. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. So John Zadrozny of the America First Policy Institute, he was also a senior Trump advisor uh, regarding immigration, and uh, he is now the director of the uh, the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration with AFPI. Uh, you know, it, it's good to have uh, level-headed <laughs> conversations uh, with facts, right, and data points. Um, And in this day and age where most of you are frustrated, right, about where to acquire information, who can you trust? Uh, One of the reasons why, you know, I'm I'm forever directing your attention to um, independent uh, sources, is because I'll speak for myself, all right. But most independent sources I'm in relationship with um, feel the same way. I am. Uh, I believe I have a personal relationship with you, so I have a personal responsibility uh, not to um, clearly not to disinform you, right? Um, and I do have a responsibility to uh, bring accurate information, people who are in positions of um, understanding, authority, access. You know, everyone has a different seat at the table. And so I appreciate you supporting my work, um, whether it's through listening, sharing my work. If you want to financially contribute to my work, I welcome you to do so. I'm actually about to begin my Patreon uh uh, relationship this year, and uh, I'm about to embark on all of that. For those of you who do not know, I have not monetized my social media uh, uh, platforms. I, you know, very re- there's a place on my website where you can actually contribute. I do not ask for donations because I'm not a nonprofit. I am a for-profit kind of chick, and I am in favor of capitalism. And so you are welcome to contribute to my work uh, through one-time giving or monthly giving, whatever it is you decide. But, and again, sharing my work, just knowing that it makes a difference in your life. Another way you can invest in my work is by taking this information and encouragement, right, and in hope and reinvesting that in your life, Invest that in your family, invest that in your city, your community, your state. Uh, if you're involved in politics, if you, uh, school boards, you know, in, in your children's lives, right? In the generations to come. That is another way that you can, um, you can support my efforts. And I do receive your emails. Thank you very much. I'm glad that this platform is a home base for you. It is a place of a uh, relationship and trust, uh, and I look forward to this year bringing, you know, some very exciting guests and, and people who have unique uh, seats at very unique tables. Um, so I'm looking forward to that moving forward this year. But that does it for me today. I'm very grateful that you guys were here with me, as always. You know where to find me. Uh, there will be a space hosted this evening at 9 p.m. on Crypto Lawyers Space on Twitter. Uh, I'll be co-hosting along with Mark uh, Naughton. You can find us there on Twitter, Crypto Lawyer. I'll also put it on my handle at Monica On Your Talk. And you can chime in on the conversation of what's going on with these mandates. Are we going to see a stay? Are we not? Uh, look forward to hearing from you guys there. Otherwise, have a great weekend. I love you. Be good to your neighbor beginning in your own mirror. And remember, if you're an American, act like one.